0: All right, everybody, we're back. It's Mike Moore, Dave Fitch, Theology on Mission podcast, where theology meets culture for Christ and his kingdom. I, I knew, normally say Christ and his mission, but we have a special guest from Wheaton College, so I said Christ and his kingdom. for those of you who are, are Wheaties, you know what I'm talking about there. You are a But Wheatie. anyways, I am a, uh, a Wheatie, although I'm a graduate of Wheatie, but I'm not a Wheatie. All right, let's just get that straightened out.
1: Let me ask you this: Have you done anything that is like prototypical fall? You did this yes. thing, and
0: you're like, hey, it is fall. Yes, Rayanne and I went out with our friends to a pumpkin fest. I bought a large pumpkin at one of these big farms with all the rides. I don't go on any of the rides with all the. And, and, and by the way, I think I spent three times what the pumpkin was worth at the at the at the local grocery store, but it was all worth it. It was a good feeling. It was a good day. Nice. Harvest Good feeling. Good. And you, my friend? Oh, yeah.
1: My dad and I went to Northwestern and watched the Penn State Nittany Lions defeat. He's doing the this, folks. To,
0: he's doing this to irritate me. He knows I'm a Northwestern fan. Yep. He knows I went there. Folks, we're glad that you're with us today on Theology on Mission podcast, and we have a special guest yes. with us. Her name is Amy Peeler. Professor of New Testament, Kenneth Westner, Chair of Biblical Studies. I always like those long titles. They always make whoever it is sound really important. But in this case, <laughs> Amy Peeler is important. Yeah. By the way, she's not just a professor. You know how we feel about just professors, Mike Moore. She also <laughs> serves as Associate Rector at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Geneva. Mm-hmm. And she's author of several books, but the latest one One that came out last year, at the end of last year, Women and the Gender of God. Wait, did I get that? When women and the gender of God. I got it right. Yes, I got it right. Late last year, we want to talk about that. We want to talk about gender and we want to talk about culture and we want to talk about how we talk about the gender of God. So welcome aboard, Amy Peeler. It's so good to finally have you after Mike Moore screwed up the the schedule a couple of times. (laughs)
2: I'm so glad to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Y'all are a lot of fun.
1: Thanks, Amy.
0: (laughs) Uh, That's what some people say anyways. Some people say irritation, but other than that. So you wrote this book, Women and the Gender of God. And I don't know what, I always ask doctoral candidates at Northern Seminary and elsewhere, what's the thesis you're getting at here? What is the thesis? Come on. Lay it on me. What's this thesis? And I want it in the first chapter, by the way. I don't want it buried. What's the thesis of women and the gender of God?
2: You know, I actually think I put the thesis in the first sentence. God values women. And there's a lot more that we could say about that. And that's why you need several hundred more pages to develop it. But that's really the goal that I wanted to achieve. That's the truth that I wanted readers to comprehend, and. Maybe you would say, Well, everybody already knows that. So why do you need to say it? In fact, some of my critics have said just that. This is so obvious. Why write a book about it? Hmm. But as someone who has been in theological education for my adult life and in the church for my entire life, there's a lot of examples of men and women who aren't totally sure that Christianity is good for women. And so I think the need was very present. And it was my great joy and delight to extricate that <laughs> truth that God actually does value women. And then maybe the sub-thesis is that I do that work by paying attention to Mary, uh, who stands uh, as a necessary piece of God's plan for salvation.
0: Yes. Yes. Just riffing off your, your comment there. And, and I must admit, this is a failure or a fault that I fall into. Quite often, but I sometimes feel like the evangelical conversation is like what a lot of us were talking about 30 years ago. Maybe, maybe if I was a little younger, and I am old, Mike, but I'm not this old. Maybe I'd say 50, 60 years ago, and and I'm thinking to myself, "Oh, gee, can we please move on?" Yeah. Well, speak into that. Tell Fitch why you have to be a little more. What would be patient and a little more caring and a little more of a night. And and it was speak into that for me a little.
2: Yeah. Bit. No, that's a great point. And then I didn't think it matters where you're situated. I think in culture. There has been even a pendulum swing in which we might need to pay attention to men, right? So much data has come out about young men struggling with mental health and where is their place in the world. I do think the Barbie movie this summer and the incredible attention that it got gave us an indication of where broader culture is having that conversation. But the church may not be exactly where the culture is. And the church, of course, is massive. What part of the church are you talking about? So in some sense, you all might be located at a place where this conversation is no longer necessary. Although I ended up having lots of fruitful conversations with Northern students when I got to teach this summer. So I think that's on an individual basis. But at Wheaton, I mean, one of the major motivating factors is that I see a lot of conservative-ish evangelicals, or at least that's the background of which they've come, And this is a live question. And so I think depending on the pocket where you exist, it is more and less necessary to address this issue. Moreover, I think this is such a massive question of how we think about God, how we think about our relationship with God as gendered beings, that it takes a lot of contribution. I don't think that there's been, I mean, there's excellent stuff written. And I have directed my students to superb works for years. But I think what I'm trying to do here with raising up Mary, asking questions about God's gender had precisely been done before. And the need is so pressing that it takes many hands to contribute to this work.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So that's yes. a few of the answers that motivated me to keep going through that's the process.
0: That, that, that is helpful. I have to remember, like I remember reading Rachel Held Ovens 15 years ago and i'm going really are we talking about this this is something most of us i'm talking about us whatever that means i'm not just talking about white males i'm talking about Mm -hmm. those who were studying seriously in the 80s Mm -hmm. well we were going and then i got (sighs) to realize she's she she was living in dayton tennessee right i gotta i gotta try to locate conversations in contexts so this gets me i'm sorry we're going to get to your book asap but these, things, these <laughs> things are bugging me. What about, all right, speaking of this for me, because sometimes I feel like places like Northern Seminary, but other places that are dealing with the issues that you're dealing with in this book, I, I feel like we're gathering women together to study and understand their importance and their mutuality in the kingdom of God and their place in ministry alongside men. And and yet sometimes I feel like we end, we end up shaping women in particular to be, angry. we spend five years being, how do we take down the SBC? Or how do we take down John Piper and like, and, and, and I feel like, oh my God, if this is all we're doing, I'm afraid we're not gonna engage the world for Christ and his kingdom. Can you can, help me out here? Cause these are the anxieties I have sometimes. Uh, in in this whole issue.
2: Yes. No, that is vitally important. I think if we create or instill within ourselves a bitterness we're fighting against, we're defined by what we're not, that is absolutely not sustainable. And so I'm very grateful that my own journey through the church, through the academy has been up until the release of this book, I've been relatively unscathed. And so in God's God's provision. I recognize that's not everyone's story, but I was able to enter into spaces and conversation without a chip on my shoulder. Like I just didn't have wounds. And so I could speak from this place of this is good news. This is joy. I think that allowed the tone of the book to be quite open-handed. You don't have to agree with me. Here's some things to consider. Ultimately, The affirmation God values women is not all about women or all about men. It's about how good God is, how gracious God is that God chose to incarnate as one of us. And so I think keeping our eyes on God's goodness allows us to proceed and advocate for justice and for a redress where there is imbalance in such a way that is not mean. And bitter, because you're never going to convince anyone by beating them over the head, but you might open the eyes of your interlocutors to a different way of approaching things when you speak with a deep conviction of God is good.
0: Yes, yeah, <clears throat> that is helpful. It's good. Uh, I'm sorry, Mike, I haven't given you much, but I just got to have a follow up. Okay, so so I have this conversation with Nijay Gupta at Northern mm-hmm. Seminary, or or sometimes Beth Felker Jones, and I yeah. say, oh, come on. Do we have to have the I'm angry at the SBC thing all over again? And they have to remind old old man Fitch. People have to process. People have to unwind their wounds. There's a lot of women yeah. who are sorting through all that stuff. Yeah. They need that space. Can you speak into that a little bit, Amy? Especially to old man Fitch who gets a little grumpy. Oh, do we have to be angry at the SBC one more time? Speak into that for us.
2: Yeah, I think another piece of that is not only what you've just named, and I have as well, people's journeys are all over the map, and so you have to really respect where someone is coming from, but these entities continue to be quite influential, both numbers-wise, right? There's still a lot of people who are part of the SBC, and and I should say, too, you know, being at an institution that often gets named at the news, I recognize that Things are always more complicated on the ground than the stories that we get. Yeah. I The blast podcast I did was with an SBC school. So there are variations in the SBC and, you know, pe- some people are open to having conversations, some are not. So it's complicated. Yes. But there's still a significant influence. TGC is another organization that I think does some good things and some things I have strongly disagreed with and done so publicly and i'm not embarrassed to say that it wields significant influence in huge swaths and so if we imagine and and another thing davis i think not everyone is called to this work right i often have this conversation especially with women scholars growing women scholars like you may want to do something that nothing to do with gender that really was my scholarly life for the first decade I was writing on Hebrews. Hebrews says nothing about gender whatsoever. And so pursue that if you want. Some of us feel a particular call to enter into this conversation, but not everyone has to because it's live for so many people, not everyone, but for so many. So, And if we can do it in such a way that, you know, calling TGC to its better angels, which I've aimed to do in some ways, both privately and publicly. What a win that would! That um, mm-hmm. may not happen, but I think we should try.
0: Yeah, Amen. TGC folks, for those of you who don't know, the Gospel yeah. Coalition. SBC, for those of you who don't know, Southern Baptist Convention. Mike, did you? You were trying to get in on this conversation, <laughs> and I was. I was doing. Never mind. I was I, Yep. Some,
1: yep. Yeah. yep. <laughs> you're, you're fine, Dave. I want to pull on a thread from your book. If we could go back to that, you mentioned in your book you do a lot of work on Mary which for evangelicals can be pretty scary, a little disruptive. We don't really have a category for Mary. Can you speak a little more about how it falls in line with some Catholic thought and maybe where it might depart?
2: Sure, sure. And I should say Scott McKnight was an early adopter. That's right. His his book, The Real Mary, was incredibly helpful for me Mm -hmm. and even some personal conversations in which he said, you know, I tried to get people more interested in Mary. Beverly Gavinta's work has also been influential, one of my professors at at Princeton. So there have been Protestant writers, not a lot, and not as, you know, not a major focus in Protestant theology. So I tried to learn a great deal from Catholic thinkers, from Orthodox thinkers. That was maybe one reason this book took so long, is mm-hmm. that I needed to read as widely and deeply as, in, as possible in places that aren't my normal field of research. And so what I appreciated learning is both the respect that they show for Mary. I learned a lot about, especially in Catholic thought, the typologies They'll look at the Old Testament, especially, and see prefigurations of Mary, the Ark of the Covenant being one of the primary ones. And I think that's so beautiful. If God is coming to dwell in her body, then of course she'll be prepared to be this space of holiness. Where I depart, then, is to say I understand where they get to some of their conclusions out of Scripture, but I don't think Scripture demands those conclusions. I become even, even more convinced that I don't think holding to her sinlessness is necessary or is it really beneficial? Nor would I hold to her bodily assumption that she was taken and acceded. And I try to lay out just a little bit of how I think some of those things could be problematic. So as I've written on Mary, as I, I teach a class on Mary here at Wheaton with my very good friend who's an art historian, we always say that every time we teach the class, we appreciate more our Catholic and Orthodox brothers and sisters and their contribution. And we feel more grounded as Protestants.
1: Mm. Yeah, And
2: I think that's a really lovely thing. Again, that's kind of a confident teachability. I want to keep learning, but I have a greater sense of who I am and how I fit within the mm. Christian fold.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it sounds like uh, these two really important streams are coming together in your book. Uh, upholding Mary and then also the incarnation. And that Absolutely. kind of folds together your your mm-hmm. argument. Can you say more on that?
2: Yes. So the pathway to this book was quite a long one. It actually started with this question, how do we speak about God well? With we all this masculine language for God, what do we do with that? And then my friend, Matt Milliner, whom I mentioned kind of said, you should think about Mary. This is a really worthy thing since mm. you talk about family in the New Testament kind of investigated her. And what I didn't realize is that over the period of many years, these two bodies of research were kind of coming together. How do we talk about God? What do we do with Mary? And they're really centered on the incarnation. Yeah. And so the Sunday school answer is the answer to my book. It's all about Jesus. <laughs> and, and as I was realizing that, I was like, I think that's actually correct. Huh. That is how Christian theology should always work is that as we are making our discoveries lo and behold, Jesus is at the middle. Hmm. And so his embodiment in God's choice through her, from her, really is the anchor of this book. And that's why I talk about her ministry and how she's spoken about in the New Testament. I wrestle with, how do we think about the first person of the Trinity? But probably the key chapter is on the maleness of our savior jesus is male it's attested everywhere i don't disagree with that, but there's something distinct about him and and the virginal conception i think should make a great difference in how we consider our savior and so that really is an anchor in the middle and everything then is processed through the incarnation and this is how we know how to talk about god uh, now again i spent eight years at Princeton. So I'm very Bardian in ways (laughs) that I don't realize, right? So this is a very Bardian, how do we know anything about God, Jesus? But that does seem correct to me as an exegete. I mean, maybe I'm influenced in ways I don't realize. But we only know how to speak of God because of scripture, but scripture is pointing to Christ. And so Christ gives us the language to know who God is and how to speak. And then Christ gives us our own identities. And how we're caught up into God's story. Hmm. So it's all incarnation, yeah. actually.
0: <clears throat> Certainly, Mike Moore and I always like us some, some Bart. In That's every, right. In every episode. So, yeah, so these are some of your central themes, which are wonderful. How the virgin birth incarnation plays into the unique maleness gender of Jesus. And a whole bunch of other good stuff here. Uh uh now I, but I want to get down to uh an issue we all grapple with. I, I just grappled with it in a new book I got coming out in uh January. I, except I I only grappled with it in a paragraph, one paragraph. <laughs> how Beca- because uh at the Northern Seminary doctorate in contextual theology, we're always talking about language and discourse and how how language shapes our views of reality, how language actually ensconces us in in issues of power and discourses of power, and so so to 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 call God Father to use masculine pronouns about God and Jesus is a real issue here, yeah. and uh, yet I didn't want to degender God because at least for me, and I I talked with Beth Felker Jones about this a little bit, and she kinda of pushed back on things a little bit and then, then she had to go do her busyness and I had to do my business. So we never got back on this, so maybe you and I can, can talk some more about this. But I, I was you take the gender out of it. And you and you you can't turn God into an it because he's a mm, personal exactly. God. Right. So you talk about like you know, people avoiding masculine language when addressing God, using language like God's self rather than himself. Avoid any false impression. And, and to me, those solutions aren't really helpful. They don't get, so, so what's your, what's your diagnosis and how do you help us get through this thing we got to deal with?
2: And I don't, I don't know that I'm fully settled. I've definitely moved farther down this path of thinking, but I'm still processing. So I'll kind of share both pieces of that. I think that is absolutely correct that creation scripture chiefly jesus and then our connection to jesus through the spirit god is revealed as personal we cannot let go of that god is not the force i think it also very much matters that god is revealed as familial right? these that christ is begotten not made as the creed says both that relationship within god and then we are incorporated not as slaves But as children, that matters. There's something distinct about family relationships that I believe Scripture through the Holy Spirit is trying to tell us. Where we run into some challenges is that we don't have parents. We have mothers and fathers. And so there's a decision made there. Where I conclude in this book, where I'm confident... Although I guess I want to keep reading. And if someone corrects me, I'm open to being changed. But that we should use father for God, not to say that God is some dude up in the sky. Not even to say that God has more masculine associated qualities than feminine associated qualities. But that is a way of pointing to the incarnation, right? First and foremost, God is the father of Jesus Christ eternally. But we would know that eternal relationship save the incarnation. And so a short way I end up saying this is we call God father and not mother because Jesus already had a mother. Actually, by calling God father, we're invoking the incarnation and the way in which the son of God came through a woman. And so I, and I've, I've needed to be careful here because some readers have misheard to say God only became Father at the Incarnation. That's not at all what I mean. The eternal relationship between the first and the second person, eternally begot, completely affirmed, but actually much of Christian tradition, the fathers and beyond, will say there's nothing particularly masculine or male about the beginningness of the second person. We could say parent and child. We use jet masculine because that is how the process happened in the incarnation. Mm-hmm. So when I fully, always happy to call God father, that for me calls forward the whole story of salvation. Mm-hmm. Now, pronouns, I think are challenging. And again, I'm so grateful to learn from other believers Whose mother tongue, whose primary language doesn't have this pr- issue, but English does. And so, there are instances in which I will use a pro- a masculine pronoun for God, especially in a section of scripture that is focused on Jesus. And so, no, definitely masculine pronouns for Jesus, because as I said earlier, he's male. But but if I can say a masculine pronoun for God, know that the Son is the reflection of the father and his maleness doesn't mean that men are closer to God than women. Again, there's a lot of work there, but there's also ways. And I was trained this way at Princeton that I did use God's self. I don't think that's always wrong or bad. I think it depends often on what community I'm in. If there's a community that has a tendency to misimagine the first person of the Trinity is some dude in the sky, then I might go to non-gendered pronouns. But if I'm in a place that needs familiarity with the dominant language of scripture, I might use masculine pronouns and talk about how that points to Jesus and Jesus's inclusion of all people. So it is complicated territory. Actually, I'm going through the copy edits of or the page proofs of a commentary I wrote on Hebrews this week. And almost every time that I come to a pronoun for God, I'm kind of mentally thinking, what should I do here? Is this best? And they're going to get mad at me if I change it back and forth too much right. because this is page proof. So all that to say, it is tough. And even though I've thought about this intensely for five to seven years, I still check myself when I use pronouns.
0: Hmm. Okay. Maybe maybe we can use this time for a little therapy moment for Fitch. Okay. So I, I decided to capitalize anytime I used a masculine pronoun for God and I said I'm signifying I'm not mm-hmm. using it in a way
2: that's helpful which
0: indicates that God has a male body mm-hmm. and, and etc this is using it in a gendered uh, giving a respect to his personal nature mm-hmm. especially the interpersonal nature within yes. the trinity yes okay and then I also said something like I said I followed Moltmann was the first person I think yeah. I read who did this Anytime I refer to the Holy Spirit, I, I refer to the Holy Spirit as her, mm-hmm. and I said that indicates the interrelationship between the three persons. And I was kind of, I kind of messed around with that as my solution. You got any? Do you like what Moltmann did by by saying the Holy Spirit is feminine? And and be and you can just tell me that's a pile of crap if you want. It's it's okay. <laughs>
2: Well, I certainly wouldn't say it's a pile of crap. I, I think, um, I, I don't know that I love all of the ways that Motman did it, but I recognize that there are some portions of Christianity that for a long time have used a feminine pronoun for the Holy Spirit. So that is an older tradition that I still need to do some work investigating. Here's where I don't like it, and I don't think this is what you're doing. But sometimes, and I don't even think Motman is, is totally guilty of this, but some more kind of lazy appropriations of this is like, oh, you know, let's sprinkle in a little femininity and let's do that with the Holy Spirit. But actually, that's just assuming what I'm doing so much work to unsettle. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, that God the Father is male and that Jesus is male like all other males. So we need a little balance. So let's right. put a little feminine in there with the Holy Spirit. That is like already you're so far down the wrong path that I wouldn't support it in that way. But there is, awesome. if if male and female are made in God's image, if it, based on Beth's work, like we will all be gendered beings in eternity, we got to keep thinking about this, but we can't do it in kind of a casual way. I think my number one transgression, if any way we assume that God the Father, God the first person of the Trinity, is male or masculine, we're in the wrong place. Hmm.
0: Yes. That's good. All right. Well, well, that's that's just the start of a long conversation, and that was yeah. great, by the way, and it got me thinking about a lot of things. Now, unfortunately, our, our podcast isn't possible to have a, a much longer conversation than we're on right now, so I'd like to close with, with this question. Okay. It, in your bio, you are um, a uh, rector at St. Mark's Episcopal Church. Okay. So, and by the way, if you can't answer this and if it's going to get you in trouble with anyone, don't answer it. Okay. But I, as a, I, I've kind of got an Anabaptist thing going in my life and I, and I kind of, am always calling evangelicals to say, look, we don't need your senior pastor itis anymore. Let's use other words. Let's get rid of the hierarchy, rid of the patriarchy entirely. Gone. Let's get rid of it. So anyways, and, and that doesn't usually go over well anyways. But my point is you're in an Episcopalian church. There's, it's It's got a long history, of course, the Church of England. And it's got patriarchy built in. And it's got all these robes and everything. And it's got this, this and that. Okay, how do you deal with that as a woman? Oh, uh, Rector. And, yeah. Because and, 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 I think women should bring that stuff down. It should call us into dismantling all that but anyways just comments closing comments (laughs) to this unbelievable podcast with dr amy peeler
2: well you know i willingly chose this right i i I moved out of baptist to become an episcopalian so whenever i have i have taken this on full acceptance as an adult i was in my early 30s when i became an Episcopalian. structure can be bad but a structure can also be a beautiful way to serve. I tend to think about it like we're all different parts of the body. I just happen to be a part of the body that has resources and time to study scripture. I in no way see myself as above my congregants. Most of my congregants are older than I am. They're more well-established in their field, brilliant people. I, I, who can, how could I boss them around? Never. Never. I come each week and say, I love the word of God. Can I share with you what I've discovered? And I'm just one part of the body. So I don't see that as a top-down kind of approach. But as you advance in the ranks, actually, the bishop would be the greatest servant of all. Now, that doesn't always work out in real life because humans are broken. But I think you can aim for that. And it can be a healthy and a beautiful thing. And I'm married to an artist, and so the whole like robes and art and beautiful music yeah. he has convinced me that beauty is a way of serving God. that's great
0: okay we' we'll we'll end with that and and you know uh, Robert Weber, Wheaton colleges, Robert Weber that became yes. northern seminaries, Robert Weber that taught me all about liturgy, et cetera, etc. Cetera. I never got over though the patriarchy built into the long systems of high church. so with that. Ending comment. Thanks to Amy Peeler for being so gracious to be with us yes. for thirty some minutes. It's been a pure delight. May God bless you, your ministry, your teaching at St. Mark's as well. And uh, we look forward to having you again on campus at, at Northern Seminary sometime because yeah. we, you so. were, you were a hit. We said, well, you.
2: they were wonderful students, and I, and I should say this is not a plug for my book. But I feel like 30 minutes, we've only scratched the surface, and maybe I've done more to confuse people than help them. <laughs> My book has a lot of footnotes, but it's not impossible to read. And so if I've picked the interest of anyone who's listening, you can see a much better explanation if you go read a few paragraphs in the book or listen to it. It, it might be nice to travel in the car with you. Hey, hey, nice.
0: Amen to that. And, and by the way, that's our goal here. We confuse people okay. enough to give them some interest in actually getting unconfused by right. buying the book. That's right. <laughs> excellent,
2: excellent.
0: <laughs> All right, folks. Well, it's been great to be with you again. Episode, whatever it is, season, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. We're glad to be with you. Uh, if you have time, give us a review, a positive one. Uh, Or a negative one. We can handle the negative. Can't we, Mike Moore? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, we can handle the negative. And uh, we uh, are so looking forward to having you with us the next time. We're doing eight episodes per tranche, they say. And we look to see you next week. Until then, it's over and out. Mike Moore. And Dave Fitch.